0: This is a show about facing fear, unlocking courage, and taking action.
1: Courage isn't necessarily a daunting thing.
0: It's going to give you more purpose. It's going to give you more drive.
1: It feels like making a courageous decision is going to get you closer to who you aspire to be. It's knowledge plus faith plus action equals courage. You talk a lot about being courageous. I think being a, an entrepreneur, you have to be fearless. Like. The voice in the back of our heads is the one that's most often holding us back it's not an enemy or a friend or family member i mean it's literally yourself in most cases
0: 2017 sort of feels like a blank, and the pandemic doesn't help but to you does 2017 feel like 100 years ago or a year ago
1: 2017 was a good year for me i got married started a company and I was, I, I guess I was broke at the same time. So there's three things that worked out. Man, you're a
0: braver man than me. I know my company is called Courageous, but I would say that that's in the land of courage. And, and, and I'll tell you, my mind doesn't go to the the entrepreneur side. Like, I, I mean, I guess it does. Where I went first was my wife and I, when we got married, I would never drag another human through like. an unfunded, a non-funded startup, which is what mine was. So like the first five years of my first business, I'm like survival mode, fear, stubbornness. Then I was like, okay, I'm going to survive. And then I was like, I can, I can actually date met my wife and the rest is history, but like, wow. So 17 year broke, start a business and get married. What were you thinking? I have nothing to lose <laughs> literally. Yes. That's accurate. Well, I would, I I would say that you're doing just fine here. And Trust and will has been such a fun rocket ship for somebody like me and to watch and, and I am watching from afar, you know, I'm, I, you know, I think we probably met for the first time in your office when you were still in San Diego, maybe 18. And I was very curious, maybe 19,
1: yeah, you're still Downtown Works in 2018. So that's where it was originally.
0: And I was super curious of what you guys were doing. I just love when you see complicated arenas made easy and not that it's, it was a commodity, but you made it accessible. That, and did you just like out of the gate go, why isn't anybody in this arena?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the culmination of, of this whole business for five and a half years now is, you know, as a consumer, not an attorney, as a consumer who was getting married, who wanted to be like somewhat responsible, even though I had no money. I joke that I was broke, but like a little bit of money, but like pretty much broke. But the idea that, you know, my wife and I were going to get married, we should talk about money. We should talk about taxes. We should talk about life insurance and setting up a will. And these shouldn't be uncomfortable or awkward conversations but in our culture it's like not a common thing to talk about at all like at any point in your life whether you're married young old wealthy poor so when it came to the estate planning piece specifically you know I was like hey you know her dad had passed when we had started dating like 12 years ago and stuff just kind of lingered for years and i i i I didn't feel like it was my place to ever have an opinion or input but i just kind of watched it and and watch the dynamic between her, her stepmom, her brother, and various assets from a home in Texas to guitars, one of which is in my closet behind me here. And if they're worth something or not, and do we do they sell them? Do they keep them? Do they donate them? And I was like, I, I love that this estate planning document, I was like, I'm pretty sure if you have it set up correctly, you control all of this. Like, it's a, it's in your hands. And if you don't, then that's in the government's hands to decide how it's divided. And so I was like, well, at least we should look into it. And when it came to estate planning, I went and talked to a couple attorneys. I got a quote for 3000 I got a quote for 5000 So I was broke, so I couldn't afford either. But I was like, what, what? for the $5,000 guy? I was like, why is your plan more than the other one? Is it, is it better? He's like, no, that's just my rate. And I'm like, that's crazy." It's like playing for the same car in a different dealership, just a higher markup. I was like, that's crazy. And naturally looking online, looking for somebody who's doing this best in class, TurboTax-like, nothing that really got me excited. And I was like. How is no one doing this? That's like my first thoughts. So I'll pause it.
0: No, I mean, keep, keep going. I mean, I, where my brain honestly went was, it, it's fascinating that it, it it is sort of a taboo conversation. Although I think because you're in my sphere and now I see trust and will, it's less so, which is, I think, the point. But yeah, my wife and I met on Match.com. There wasn't a a line item on estate planning, right?
1: You have a common interest in estate planning. Swipe right.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, right? But, but but to your point, we should be talking about this type of stuff. I think I read somewhere that two-thirds of Americans, is that right, don't
1: have? Yeah, between half and two-thirds. Generationally, if you look at, like, younger people, millennials, young Gen X, like, two-thirds do not. Even boomers, 65 plus, there's only about 40% that haven't done this. So it's pretty wild and it applies to everyone. I mean, like you could be Elon Musk rich or an everyday person when we're all going to die one day, spoiler alert. And when we die, if you don't have this set up, you go to probate and the government along with your family is deciding how to divvy up assets. Now for an everyday family, if you have a good relationship, it can be bumpy, but relatively smooth. If it's like a house that's going to be divided evenly, some assets or collectibles, art, cars, but like when you look at Aretha Franklin, Prince, Tony of Zappos, very notable figureheads, dying without a will, it took seven years for Prince's estate, four for Aretha Franklin. Tony Shea, who died a couple of years ago now, is going to be years ahead of him because now there's litigation. Now there's people coming out of the, the shadows saying, no, 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 I worked with him on that or I'm entitled to this. And at a state of that size, it's going to just take, again, years to unravel, cost potentially millions, if not tens of millions of legal fees. So like, not that that's the case when we started Trustmall, but we're like, if we build something for the everyday family, like this is a selfless act of love, that's why people do this. And the only thing that matters is that they know you can do this online. It doesn't have to cost you an arm and a leg. You don't have to be rich, like kind of demystify it in some ways. And that, that for us as a brand, we're like, we have to be direct to consumer. Like that's the only way this will work is if we go D C, build a brand and educate the entire U S population on why this matters.
0: My Mother in law passed away. Gosh, rest in peace, Miriam. Maybe eighteen months ago now, and she had her act together. She she had it together, right? And you know, we're not gonna. We don't need to spiral into that. I will say that it was the best of the worst scenarios. Like my wife and her got to have the conversations that they need to have, and her mom was so was very buttoned up that there was peace of mind. There wasn't a this is going to take a four or five year to unwind or try to predict what somebody really wants. It was very easy for us. So I see the the true benefit and like life can go on for everybody else, like right away. Not that you're trying to like put something in the ground and not literally want to talk about it. But for us, I think we appreciated that she had her act together. So when I hear like no less than 170 million Americans are not, they don't have this, they're act together in this space. And by the way, not a small opportunity, like you said, spoiler alert, everyone's going to pass away. What is like, when you think about the one thing you were most worried about, and it could be the team we put together or someone's gonna come into the space, or we're like, if you have to go back, what was the number one thing?
1: Uh, not getting sued. Three non-attorneys starting an estate planning company. I was like, are we like allowed to do this? Like we it was so obvious like you, you look, we looked at like Airbnb's co-founders didn't come from hospitality, Uber and Lyft's founders didn't come from the taxi industry. There's so many examples of entrepreneurs that like faced a personal challenge or problem, come from no industry experience or expertise and saw an opportunity. And these were those were regular Uber, Airbnb, lift very regulated industries like almost like mob level regulation to some extent and for us ours isn't mob it's the it's not the mob's attorneys and state bar associations but like very regulated industry so of course we consulted some trust and state attorneys like just kind of figuring out is this something that we want to pursue without getting too deep into it and then we ended up hiring one of our first employees at the company who's still with us today was a 10-year practicing trust and state attorney and it took us almost a year and a half, two years to get our documents and our product experience live in all 50 states because we wanted to be aggressive and ambitious on the growth of the company, which we have been for five and a half years, but conservative on not stepping on toes, not being subject to unauthorized practice of law. And I can proudly say that five and a half years, we've only had two inquiries, which is just like, hey, we want to like learn more about what you're doing, how you approached it, provided a response. Now is the end of it. There was no follow on. So and now we're doing coalition building. We're working with the trade associations. We're actually passing legislation within our industry to accelerate innovation and digital signature adoption within estate state planning. So like five and a half years to like finally have a budget and relationship building towards the industry that previously maybe thought we were trying to go against them from a business model. We're not competing with attorneys. We want to complement attorneys and their journey and complement the consumers that they can't serve because they can't afford the attorney or they didn't know to go to an attorney. They can do it online safely.
0: Talk to me about your OG team. Who was on the OG team? I know a couple of the guys, but like talk to me about like the like why this team were like were they friends? Were they experts at what they did? Did you go to college with them?
1: Yeah. So I, I've been a serial entrepreneur. So this is startup number three, second venture back business. So you talk a lot about being courageous. I think being a, an entrepreneur, you have to be fearless. Like the voice in the back of our heads is the one that's most often holding us back. It's not an enemy or a friend or family member. I mean, it's literally yourself in most cases. And so I was like, I, like I said, when I opened up, I was like, I had nothing to lose. I had no money and nothing else I was working on. Thankfully, my mother and my, my wife's stepmom, she took us in the first year of the business because we barely, we barely paid ourselves anything. So I had a roof over my head. I was like, what's the worst that happened? It doesn't work. And then, yeah, go get a job somewhere and when we started this so daniel and and brian my co-founders had known for eight maybe eight nine years now because we've been in business for six and daniel and i met up for coffee august 4th 2017 so almost six years ago it's a month and we're kind of jamming on crypto and life and he's like dude i made a bunch of money in bitcoin like if i get hit by a bus like i don't know what happened to it and he's like you're getting married aren't you i was like yeah he's like don't you aren't you supposed to have this when you get married I was like yeah it's on my to-do list i was like i can't afford it i don't i don't know where to start and that's really what kind of kickstarted the first few months like we went to my before we were in the co-working space my apartment complex had a clubhouse every day august september into october of 2017 researching what is the state planning who's in this space what's the business model why does nobody have this everything you'd want to figure out and do we pursue this And then we had this opportunity to do the largest pitch competition in San Diego, the Quick Pitch, which is at Qualcomm's headquarters. It's in front of 500 people in the auditorium, like all the movers and shakers of the startup community. I'm like, dude, we should pitch this and see what the response is. Like, we didn't even know if we'd get on stage because there's hundreds of applicants. Got on stage, top 10, pitched live in front of 500 people, took third place, got a big happy Gilmore check for 5,000 cash. And Brian, our third co-founder, We'd kind of pulled him in because he worked with Daniel. We would pull him in to, to like help us do a Squarespace page. We're like, we need to capture email leads, like just bring real people in the audience. And I think I can share this, but like he got fired that night because his boss saw him in a photo. And, you know, we literally were just like, it was a Squarespace page. Like we didn't know what, we weren't even a company. Like we were just like working on something. But Brian, Brian obviously joined as third co-founder. He's been a wonderful addition, still with us, obviously. And we've been building this company for, for five and a half years now. So the other two people we hired straight out of the gates was, so Patrick, our, our GC, who had been a trust and state attorney, and Eric, our director of engineering, who had been he our head of engineering. He had been an engineer in my last company. It was like one of my first phone calls. I was like, dude, you got to come work with us. So that was like the original five in like a small office at a co-working space downtown. I
0: remember downtown works, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're just still like a distant home to us, like an old apartment we used to live in. So
0: if you had a time machine and you could go back and you were going to add just one other person to the team and it can be person or role, hmm. what would you add?
1: Probably a finance person sooner. Like Daniel went to school for finance. We've had like a CFO, part-time CFO for, for three, four years now. But like having a full-time person managing finance at the company, even at an early stage, like having your numbers buttoned up even if they're not good looking numbers, they're negative unit economics, they're out of whack, but if they're super accurate, it's really healthy to have those conversations with investors. We were always trying to tell a story with our numbers, it's like taking like a qualitative approach to mathematics, not a quantitative approach. And I've noticed just a massive shift in our business since we started working with a fractional CFO, since we made a full-time hire on the finance team internally is that like, our numbers are pretty good. And my confidence as an entrepreneur to present those numbers to current investors, future investors is exponentially increased and improved. And that's, that's a hire I would have made a lot earlier in the journey.
0: I want to talk about, so then I'll see this, but I don't want you to answer this yet. Like as you think about if you come back on the show six years from now, where, where will the, the business and the brand be? But before we get there, you know, as an entrepreneur, I mean, you've been on this entrepreneurial journey your whole life. Like, wh- where did this bug come from? Is it in the family? Why you? Are you are you the first a first timer
1: in the fam? Yeah, in the family. Yeah, mom and dad still together, coming up on forty years here. Dad worked in a casino most of his career. He was like a teacher turned casino guy, and then my mom worked on and off, mostly in hospitality in in her, her my childhood years, and then a little bit in, in corporate, but nothing like significant. And I think in college is when I kind of got the bug because I had this, like, I'd always, I was inspired by Steve Jobs, like the way that people kind of idolize Elon Musk for better or for worse, like I idolized Steve Jobs because he, when he introduced the iPhone, like even before that, he was just the best presenter I'd ever seen. I used to cut class in high school to go watch his keynotes in the library because they had Wi Fi speed, or I don't even know if it was Fi hardwired speeds, fast enough to stream the keynotes, which are always like Tuesday mornings at 10 a.m. Pacific. And when he unveiled the iPhone in 2007, I was like, I saw the future, and I was so, in, like, kind of like infatuated with this device that I I wanted to work at the Apple Store. So I worked at the Apple Store at Fashion Valley in San Diego when the first iPhone came out. Those who are listening won't be able to see this, but I have a deconstructed iPhone here. Oh, I love that on my bookshelf. And the reason why I have this in, and I I see it every day. And the reason why I have this is that. Every day I got to put the future in people's hands. It was so odd. People would come to the Apple store. You can think back to 2007, there was like Blackberries, but there was not a touchscreen multi-touch device like an iPhone. Our job was to put the device in people's hands and people wouldn't even pick it up. It was like a newborn baby on display at the Apple store. And people were like, oh, I don't want to break it. I'm like, it's a phone. You're supposed to break it. You're supposed to have fun with it. And even though it was the same device, it only came in an eight and a 16 gig configuration. This was before the before the App Store. Every day, I was like, this is the control panel to your life. And if you were a teacher or if you were in nonprofits, if you're a business professional, stay-at-home parent in college and high school, there's a thousand different use cases for that device, even before the app store. So that was really, I think, what kind of kicked off this entrepreneurial journey is that I had the same pitch for one product, a thousand different ways that I could splice it up. And as this is now company number three, I could take the same trustable pitch and spiv it up. You know, hundreds of different ways, depending on who I'm talking to and what their interests might be in our business. So
0: I'm a I'm a little older than you, but the Jobs thing resonates, and for me it was it was the iPod. Yeah, you know, it was ten thousand songs in your pocket, and you know I, I I I don't think it's a mistake that I'm in the you know in the in, in the presentation world. I'm in the you know like my job is to present a story, and my style is very much. blend of my parents who by the way 54 years today
1: wow happy anniversary
0: right so the the, by the time the episode runs it'll be 54 years and a month but i am a my style is very much a blend of them like my dad is a lawyer he's still practicing he's a user to lose a guy and he knows that he has to be prepared to go in front of a jury and he's got to give them one step at a time before we move on to the next part of the story my mom was a teacher and she was like a third grade teacher. So like there's empathy, there's patience, there's sweetness, there's tact and you blend those universes and like, I, that is my arc. That is the way that I present stories. So I'm curious as someone that comes from a teacher slash casino and like, and then hospitality, like how does that show up in you? And how does that show up in the business?
1: Yeah, my dad, so he started as a, a car dealer, working night graveyard shifts in, in his early casino career and rose all the way to senior vice president of operations of Commerce Casino. It's one of the largest, park, it's one of the largest poker rooms in the country. And even when I was younger, like middle school, high school is when I started to, like, notice this more from the owner of the casino all the way down to the janitorial staff. He knew everybody's name. He went out of his way to say hi, acknowledge them, ask them how their family was doing. So, like, yes, he was in the casino setting, but it's hospitality at its core. And it was the one thing that I was always like, he would treat the person who's lowest on the totem pole wherever we'd go as equal to the highest person on the totem pole. It was like, it's a gift. And it's like not to ever like suck up to someone just because of their title rank and file. Like I was on a call yesterday with the public company CEO. And I, you know, it's just, to me, it's just like in the moment, just like a, conver- a biz dev conversation. And like, I get off the call, I'm like, holy shit, that was the CEO of a public company. Like I was like, who am I to talk to CEO of a public company? But like, you kind of just get to this point in, in the journey in business, that like you shouldn't treat someone different because of their title. And it actually can work better in your favor. You come off as more authentic, more human, uh, both for your own engagement with that individual or or reflective of that. It's the way that people perceive you. And that's that's been a gift that was given that I've learned and I'm still investing in, you know, 20, 25 years later from when I started to notice it.
0: So I want to keep a show about you, but I also want to do a quick story time you, you, that I think you'll appreciate. So my, when I was in college, I went to school in upstate New York. I went to Ithaca College as a television radio major. So here we are with a microphone. At least I'm putting the, the, the degree to good use. But between my sophomore and my junior year, I was very, very close to transferring to Cornell, which is like literally up the hill there. It's like a mile away. My neighbor's was a guy named Stan Bromley, who was basically the vice president of Four Seasons Hotels. And we've always gotten along. He knew I was good with people. And it was December was coming up. He's like, you've got the grades. You've got the personality. If this is something that you think you want to make the pivot into hospitality, come work at the hotel for winter break. And if you like it, we'll go from there. And he had been to Cornell, spoken to Cornell. So I'm like, this is going to be great. I'm going to get paid to go work for a month at Four Seasons. I'm sure I'll be at the front desk working the phones, shadowing somebody. And I get there in my very first week, he hands me a back belt, takes me to the to the the basement. There's no windows, and I'm with the Kenyans for the whole week, just moving beds. Some speak English, some don't. At the end of the day, Stan would come down, ask everyone out they their doing. Hey, Mr. Bromley, hey, Mr. Bromley. And then I wouldn't see him again. So the whole first week was just Moving beds. Second week. This is when I had hair. The good old days. I was cleaning dishes in in the Hobart with the señoritas. Third week. I finally got to see people. I was vacuuming floors. And so this experience goes on. And Stan Bromley pulls me aside. He's like, "So what do you think of your experience?" And I was like, "Okay." You know, this isn't what I thought it would be. But you know, I uh actually really enjoyed it i think i'm going to stay in television radio by the way but they really enjoyed it and he and his his lesson was the exact same one that you said he's like look you need to know what life is like for everyone who works inside your organization it doesn't matter if they're the c-suite they're a vp for us if they're moving beds like there has to be true empathy and you have to know every layer of the organization and what they're like because if you do then you can actually like motivate them and inspire them which is exactly the story that you just told about your dad.
1: Yeah, I mean like I think the way that it's translated to part of my leadership is yeah, you know, we're a remote first organization. We have 80 employees across the country and I'm I'm in Dallas, so like only my co-founder Daniel's here in Dallas. And as as often as I travel, try to go out of my way to have dinner with my team if it's not somebody I directly work with every day. We went had a conference in Vegas, had one of our QA engineers come out to dinner, was in New York a few weeks ago, invited a QA engin- or a engineer and two of our partnerships managers out to an event. And like even in LA, bringing in someone from our probate team, our support team, and from, you know, multiples from our support team. And just like, hey, let's go to dinner. Like, let's have fun and enjoy each other's company outside of the company events that we do a couple times per year. And and just you know doing a formal check-in. I still onboard every single employee at the company. I'm proud to do it. I maybe make some people uncomfortable. I, I challenge them to book thirty minutes on my calendar at the end of their first month, and I'm about half take me up on it, just to try and you know see if they're willing to you know hop on. Because
0: pay pay attention, other half. Okay, pay. I know you're listening because he's saying it's still time. You get on his calendar.
1: <laughs> but on top of that, I you know I I did a one-to-ones company one-to-ones with the whole team back in March and April, and I'm trying to do that once or twice per year with like very specific set of questions, same questions for everyone. So it's equal. But I like just, just to like be present in this virtual, like I, I have to remind myself and, and especially the intentionality of this for the team is like, we're at a point in our journey where like we've built the business, we've got half a million customers that have signed up on the product, we've raised 50 million in capital, the business is doubling year over year, like we've built a great business that we want to take public in the next five years. So there's your six year answer. We want to be a public company and have helped millions of families, but like reminders for myself and and to always appreciate every step of the journey. So I tell the whole story of trust Mill for every employee that I onboard. And that it's like, I remember what it's like in the first two years. Like we had no idea if this would work. We had raised a little bit of money, paid ourselves nothing. And I, I remind myself what that life was like, but also where the business was and try to make them feel a little bit.
0: I mean, you're in Dallas now, but I, w- I'm going to claim you as a San Diegan still, I mean,
1: I'll turn my camera just so no one can see. I still have my Aztec logo up here. I have a Sean White snowboard on the wall here. I have a Tony Hawk skateboard on the wall here. And <laughs> I have a certain pick on the wall over here. So as Dallas as I am, I'm still very much a SoCal kid at heart. Well,
0: talk to me about March Madness here this year. How much fun was that for you?
1: It was awesome. So San Diego State, I mean, the farthest we had made it prior was Sweet 16 with Kawhi Leonard. And, you know, I was in school when that happened. So that was just incredible. And then when I, when we, you know, got sweet 16 and then elite eight. And then I saw final fours in Houston and we're in Dallas. I was like, we're going, I was like, the world is stopping for a couple of days. We're going to final four. We got a buzzer beater to win that game, which was the greatest sports moment of my life. I like and celebrating it with people that I hadn't seen in 15 years was just as cool as the moment itself. And then going to the national championships, even though we lost UConn, it was like their fifth, fifth time in the big game. It was so cool. And like, excuse me, very optimistic for our, our future of basketball at San Diego State.
0: I mean, that, the buzzer beater was ridiculous. I mean, just... It...
1: Like, the image of him shooting it, it is just, like, forever just imprinted in my brain. Both the picture, like, the iconic picture that was in every newspaper, as much as, like, being there in person. And, like, I think losing our minds for five or ten minutes. Like, the next game was starting. They're doing warm-ups. And, like, they're like, you need to get out. Now, think, <laughs> leave, Go go party up in the stands.
0: Yeah, we'll see you Monday, but get out of here.
1: Yeah. So, do you feel at all like
0: San Diego State kid, you know, first time? I mean, you've been an entrepreneur, you've, you're learning as you go along, but because it's not exactly in the blood of the family, like, did you have imposter syndrome along the way, or do you still have imposter syndrome?
1: I still do. It's pretty, pretty common for entrepreneurs. I think there's like a, like every, am almost every day for the, for the people listening, like I'm almost always in a trust and well polo. Like I was like putting on the Jersey every day. Like I'm not an athlete, but like I can get in the mindset of being in the business and taking this Jersey off at, you know, five, 30 and being a husband and a dad to a daughter and, and to a dog. And, you know, there's, there's part of my personal life that I feel very confident in. And I think I've, I've, I've learned to embrace the uncomfortableness of being an entrepreneur. Cause every quarter this role changes. Like in the early days, I'm wearing multiple hats. Now I'm two or three layers removed from a lot of the departments in the company. My job is, is heavily on almost stakeholder management. We have 50 institutional investors on our cap table, right? We raised 50 million. I've got half a million customers that I still see every review that comes through. A handful of folks in our network that reach out about wanting to use Trust & Well and being an educator support. We have 100 plus institutional partners. So I'm out meeting with executives at large banks and insurance companies, special interest groups, coalition building as we're leading lobbying and legislative efforts. I have I have no political background. So we have a strategy firm in DC. I have two attorneys. Like I was on a call earlier today about that. And then on top of that, just like being as present as I can without it being a distraction, at least on LinkedIn, a little bit more Twitter for the business's benefit and like being accessible, being available, trying to monitor the inbox. It's like, I'm probably getting... 1,000 to 3,000 notifications per day between all channels, Slack, email, social, text, phone calls, Zoom calls. It's 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 always context switching too. Like I could do a podcast with you and the call before this was talking legislative efforts. The call before that, talking about a nonprofit group that I'll be speaking to They're rising stars within the organization. Earlier today, talking to an investor, it's like, I've almost had to learn to embrace that like ambiguity. Every single call could be different. But it's like, I could literally end this podcast and transition to the next call, which I will and like not think twice about like, oh, no, I didn't prepare for this. It's kind of weird. That's where my roles evolved into is this forever context switching and trying to make sure that I'm sharing that context and conversations with my chief of staff, with my executive team so they kind of know what's going on in Cody's world, that I'm not just on this island by myself <laughs> most days. It's wild, but I, I kind of just embrace it.
0: Well, I, I love your demeanor and, and your your energy and like your accessibility. And I think your positivity, it comes out like not just in this conversation, but it, I, I've never not been happy to run into one of your posts on LinkedIn because it's, it's, there's progress and there's energy. And I just think you're a glass half full guy. And we need, we need more of that. And it, it comes through in the way you articulate
1: yourself. Yeah. It's, I mean, like the world's, Like as much as there's like problems and challenges in the world, like, I I don't know. I mean, like we went through the pandemic. We went through this last year's economic challenges and like always finding the right lifeline at the right time. And I, I, I've tried to use this like kind of phrasing of like, we're creating our own luck as often as we can every day in good times and bad. Because like, until there's a trans, like at least in the business lens, like until there's a transaction, like we are still building for the long term, like that is to take this company public. And building relationships and partnerships and the backup that like, there's always a potential that somebody comes along to acquire us. But like, we've got stakeholders, which is again, our investors, our team, our customers, they're all counting on us to drive this business as far as we can. And then, you know, on the personal side, like third time around, like being as present as I can with the family. i am traveling a lot more now that like, we're very much in full swing on conferences and people want to meet in person, but I like my family time. I like actually turning off the entrepreneur mode and just transitioning to dad and husband on nights and weekends and trying to lead that example for my team. that's it's like forever thinking through like it's a challenge.
0: Have you like taken the family on the road with you to any of these conferences?
1: I got to take my wife to that entrepreneur of the year event in San Diego, which was super cool. I mean, like, you know, that's, a, I'm not an, I, I like the, we, I like winning, winning with the team always. So I share the award and recognition for the entrepreneur of the year with the team. But my wife came with me to that event. It was it was cool. It was very we've been together for twelve years. That's how long I've been building startups and first one failed. Second one had some success, but didn't end up where we wanted it to be. So the third time around, i like I share it with her for sure on that that piece specifically. But I don't know. It's just kind of today to me is just Wednesday at Trust and Will as weird as that says to say.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I'm sure you've learned you can't spell trust and will without the the us in trust. So all right. What well, what is like, again, if the data is the data, then like you said, two thirds of us don't have an estate. Like, what do you want us to know about you know, why this is important and, and why you're the, like the right partner for us?
1: Yeah, yeah. So trust, trust them all. I mean, again, our, our existence matters to make estate planning accessible and affordable for everyday families. Most people won't ever do this. They either don't know to do this. They don't know that they can go to an attorney. They can't afford the attorney. And it's like all of the triggering events that really get people to do this. Kids is number one, buying a home. Sadly, the death of a loved one is typically a large trigger. Divorce, marriage, sometimes more or less, a wealth, like a wealth transfer, meaning like you're inheriting money or you're making money, a liquidity event. You sell a business or equity in a business, you get cash cashed out. These are all triggering events to get to do this. And- when people come to trustinwill.com, we assume you know nothing about a state plan. So we're very heavy on education. We have hundreds of articles on our Learn Center. We have a simple quiz that has kind of the questions, mostly around triggering events, that's going to help you get started with a will or with the trust package. Most people know what a will is through family or pop culture references or their parents threatened to leave you out of it at some point, or there's movies like Knives Out around the whole plot based around a will. Um, and then the trust is like, it's had this like rich kid trust fund connotation for so long which is total bs like it's a myth busted like the reason people set up a trust is to avoid a probate you create a trust you could call it whatever you want most people call it their family name so the barbo family trust and you put your assets in it your biggest assets, your home your financial accounts and effectively like when i pass away my wife as trustee takes over the ownership of those assets and accounts you generally avoid probate if it's if it's funded correctly but there's a lot more hand-holding and education that comes with people choosing the trust, unless they're getting like told by their financial advisor to do it, or they know to set up a trust, which is rare. So when you come to trust it takes about 30 minutes to fill out all this information about your kids, your family, your assets, questions about healthcare. If you are incapacitated, who can make decisions on your behalf? Do you want to be resuscitated or not? That's like the pulling the plug question that we all want to avoid, but like, it's very important. And then there's also final arrangements. Do you want to be buried, cremated, You have human composting now, which is legal in like seven states and just like literally grow back into the earth. And there's all these questions that we ask you about this. And if you have, you have any want or reason to talk to a human being, we have human support, six days per week, chat in, talk to Jason, Anna Marie, Megan, Ashley, Meg, and we make the process as simple as it can be, even though these are daunting questions you've never asked yourself or your spouse or partner. Cost around. $1.59 159, 159 and 259 for a single and couples will. And then we have a six and seven hundred dollar package for trusts for single or couples. And then if you want to come back and make updates, so you have unlimited updates in the first year. Typically people opt into the small membership. It's 19 a year for the will, 39 a year for the trust. And that's the ability to come back if you have any major life events. So like my life, moved to Texas, bought a house, had a kid the last couple of years. All those are included in this small membership without having to pay the full price again. And the concern is that most families that set up an estate plan with an attorney, that those documents might go untouched for 30, 40, 50 years, your whole life can change. The people named in the documents may all no longer be alive. You have new assets, new families You might've gotten remarried, blended families. So it's really important to keep these documents up to date. And that's why we got into the probate business. So probate about a million families per year end up in probate. It's kind of the, the government's court process for transitioning wealth and assets if you die with a will or no estate plan. And we help families save time, cost, and helping transition their 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 assets through the probate process a little bit faster than trying to figure it out on their own.
0: All right. We're gonna have two questions left. One is a two-parter, though, and then and one is about the business, and then one I think is just for entrepreneurs in general. So the first is on the business. This is the two-parter. What is like it like just drives you mad, or fr- just frustrates you to no end about the business? And it might be like consumer block that they don't go and learn this space, or it could be something you've dealt with on raising capital, or maybe it's something with the team. But like, give me like the number, like the biggest frustration point you have since you've been in the business.
1: Yeah, probably more on the regulatory side. So estate planning, due to its kind of legacy nature, has been executed offline. Like paper documents, wet signature, in-person notary witnesses, almost every industry has been touched by digital signatures. DocuSign is kind of the leading charge in that example. Notary historically has been offline. You have a notary that comes to your house or to your place of business, or you go to a UPS store. There's companies that Notarize.com specifically that have been very successful in lobbying to get digital remote online notarization. I think they've activated 44 states, and they've raised like 250 million dollars in in their company's journey, and that's been a huge effort for them. So our our frustration, my frustration, is the lack of acceptance of digital signatures and execution within state planning. And like no one was solving this. Like there's like a little bit of effort from LegalZoom, so I like to give them credit there. But like they didn't build anything from a product perspective. So in 2019, we actually completed the first electronic will in U.S. history. We saw legislation happening in Nevada. We wanted to build a product experience, so we partnered with Notarize.com, made that happen. We've done that in five states now, first in five states, and we've been lobbying. We have a strategy firm in D.C. We're lobbying. And over a dozen states that we've been successful in, another eight this year, to bring this digital execution to all 50 states. Like it is so obvious after a pandemic that consumers should be able to digitally sign and notarize these documents, and you still get pushed back. And everybody that pushes back, I'm like, have you ever used DocuSign? You're like, of course. I'm like, how could you not be behind this? Like, there's identity protection. It's an audit trail. It's far more secure than the notary. That like the notary doesn't show up when you die in probate. Like they're they're dead too. It's like a book that they stamp as well. It's the stupidest thing to me. I'm a little triggered by your question, <laughs> and and we want to make estate planning accessible. Like, creating an estate plan is meaningless if it's not executed. Completely meaningless. You could spend ten thousand on a trust with the best attorney in the city. You don't execute it or fund it. You're in probate. It's like, why? Why? All
0: right. Now that you're triggered, I have to get you untriggered. So here, here's here's the good question. So. I know you just had an offsite with your team, the amount of joy that comes with sitting with them and being with your people and thinking about the future and dreaming about the future and, and executing on the future. Is there, it's almost an unfair question, but like if you had to just pick one moment of like absolute excitement or joy that you can share on the business, what what is it?
1: Now it's, it's when our team meets up in person. So we did like our company-wide summit back in the spring. We did an exec summit a, a couple of weeks ago, but company-wide summit in the spring. And we met up a couple of times company-wide throughout the pandemic, kind of COVID cautious with all the protocols you'd imagine. It's like, it it's hard to feel the business when you're virtual. Like I have to like really drink the Kool-Aid every day because I'm just like you on this interview, like we're, we're staring at a computer screen. And it, we have a friendship outside of this computer screen conversation so that counts a lot. But like having that in person relationship is like, it's a thousand X worth its weight. You get, I spend all day, every day with my co founder, chief of staff on different Zoom calls. I get to meet up with my co founder every Monday for two hours. Daniel, he's here in Dallas. It's like, it's so invigorating. And that's for the company summit. It was like, it's so invigorating to have the team there in person. We're going to do a family weekend mid-September in San Diego because half of them are there and people are like what do you mean a family weekend I'm like wives husbands spouses partners boyfriends girlfriends someone asked if they could bring their parents they said, bring the parent kids are welcome we're gonna have outdoor activities for dogs I think cats are welcome <laughs> 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 but like and people and, you know a team well. you know what's the point I said look we have our entire mission at our company is around supporting families and preserving their legacy like let's start with our own team and their families. Like let them feel what we've built as our first family weekend unfolds. So getting the team in person and getting their families to feel the amazing organization that we built and like really building, again, a loyalty to the mission, a loyalty to the culture. And it's just fun too. It's just like at its core, like you gotta have fun when you're building a startup. It's so hard and stressful on some days and times. They can't, can't lose the fun factor.
0: This is a good segue into my second question, which I'm now turning into a two-parter only because of what you just said. So so the the first part of it is if you today was talking to you when you started the business, what advice would you give yourself to six-years-ago version of you from today?
1: Yeah, don't get caught up on your weaknesses so much. Like, I think we can be so self-critical on things that we're just, like, never going to be good at. And I I had to like kind of coach my co-founders through because they gave me this like critical feedback on things that I knew I wasn't good at. And I was like, I thought I was setting enough expectations up front. I'm like, I am not good at these things. For you to expect me to be great at the things that I'm absolutely worse at, it's not a healthy relationship. And like, you know, one of the examples ended up being a hire that we made at our, we closed our series B in December of 2020. And I was like, we're going to hire chief of staff for 20 people. And they're like, you don't need, like, you don't need an executive assistant. Like, it's not an executive assistant, it's chief staff. I was like, if I could clone myself today to manage the stakeholders, investors, team, partners, the crazy thoughts and conversations that I'm having, synthesize them, organize them, communicate that out. I was like, that's that's finding someone who actually strengths are my weaknesses. And they're in the kind of co-pilot seat with me every day in the business. And I don't have to feel as lonely in the role as a lot of founder CEOs do but also have someone who can take what I'm saying and hearing and kind of digest it in a way that is more accessible for the broader organization, not hear what I want to hear, say what I want to say. They're hearing what they need to hear, what the organization needs to say and be told. And it's just, that was one of the key hires we made. And that that woman is still with us today as well at the company. Awesome. All right. For
0: any entrepreneur or soon to be entrepreneur that's listening in, and I always I always like to think that if someone has stuck around for 45 minutes with us, they're clearly engaged right They're in this conversation and they probably have big plans for them. What advice do you want to give to them sort of to to take us out of this conversation?
1: Yeah, I mean, curate the classroom you want to be in every day. I mean, it costs nothing. Like I have been out of school for for 12 years and, you know, Twitter and LinkedIn are my classroom. You can YouTube's my classroom. You literally can curate content from the people who you're most inspired by. And they're literally a follow away. It's so powerful. Like I can open up Twitter, I can open up any social media. I get a little bit more memes on my Instagram, which <laughs> is great, a little comedic relief every day. But like Twitter and LinkedIn specifically from a networking perspective, like I'm always shocked when people don't add context when they're connecting with someone. Like I get so many LinkedIn requests per day. And if somebody doesn't give me a reason, like unless they're at a company that we're talking to or organization that I want to be be with or ton of mutual connections, but if I don't have context, I'm like, why should I accept your connection request? It's like you're like in the circle with me at like a happy hour, but you're not speaking, so I don't know you. I don't know anything about you. We're at the event, so there's something interesting about that. But I've I've always been a proponent. Like when I'm reaching out to someone, almost ninety five percent of the time, I'm going to give context. Or if I connect with someone, hey, I always ask, hey Ryan, what what inspired you to reach out? And then that context for me is a timestamp. So I look back, oh, how do you know Ryan? I am like, oh, we have. 200, Brian and I have 263 mutual connections on LinkedIn. I was like, and we could probably, you and I could literally spend an hour. We could probably talk through most of those people. Oh yeah. which Which is a gift. It's an art. You have to invest in that investment. So like when you're an entrepreneur, you don't have to have success to connect and network with people. Like I will reach out shamelessly to people, to investors I want to raise money from, to CEOs of public companies that we want to work and partner with, to people that I want to recruit to our company, even if they're not looking for a job. And there's something really powerful about that that just starts with your willingness to want to do it. Like, don't wait. Oh, I'll, I'll get around to it next week. I'll get around to it. Like, you see someone that you like, you're like, wow, I'm super inspired by Ryan. Don't just follow him, connect with him, give context. I listened to the podcast. and like, I'm really inspired by the questions that you asked Cody today. You know, when you were 22, what what kind of put you on this journey that you're now at? Those questions are so powerful. And when I interview, I, I like to ask those abstract questions who inspired you personally, who inspired you professionally, what books are you reading, podcasts are you listening to, who do you follow and why? And like really trying to understand like what gets people's curiosity brain kind of firing off and letting that dictate, you know, what a network relationship could, could kick and have.
0: Well, keep, keep at it, man. You know, you got a fan here and a lot of us are rooting for, for you guys, you and Daniel looking forward to seeing you guys take it public in about five ish years and stay courageous out there, and don't forget about us, San Diegans. Come back and see us.
1: I, in my brain, I'm swimming in Like I, I showed, I showed you the room. We're in San Diego once or twice a month.
0: So you're, it's really just we might as well rebrand Dallas as San Diego is what you're telling me.
1: Yeah, I just we're a San Diego company. It's still you'll see it in the footer of our website. We're committed. We got alumni from San Diego State, UCSD. For a supporter of the startup community. We'll be a, an anchor sponsor for Startup Week for San Diego Innovation Day this year. I mean, like as committed as we can be, Downtown Partnership, the Chamber of Commerce, we are committed to San Diego for the long time. Awesome, man.
0: All right, be good, Cody. Great to see you, buddy. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Courageous Podcast. If you enjoy the show, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so more people can find us. See you again next week.